Hello and welcome to episode four of the new It's Nice That podcast. This is the show where we talk to leading designers, illustrators, creative directors and photographers about the delights and dramas of being a creative. We want to scrub away the Instagram gloss and hear the honest truth from people who've built careers out of their creativity. How do they come up with their best ideas? What's the secret to staying inspired? And what happens when creative projects go awry? My name is Matt Alagaya. I'm the editor-in-chief of It's Nice That. And today, my colleague Lucy Borton will be sitting down with the illustrator and designer Olympia Zagnoli. We'll hear how she pushes herself out of her comfort zone and discover the secret to maintaining a fresh mind. Then later on, we'll be heading to a cafe in West London for this episode's Nice Note to hear from one of the funniest comic illustrators around. That's all coming up on the It's Nice That podcast. First, though, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined again on the podcast by my colleague, Lucy Borton, our senior editor. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, doing very well, thank you. How's your day going? What have you been up to? I've been working from home today, which is nice. I had a swim this morning, which was even nicer. Lovely. And yeah, I was just reading a feature which we just published, which is a breakdown of typefaces as horoscopes, which is absolutely fantastic for anyone who hasn't read it yet. Yeah, this is a very funny feature that we published last week, written by Becky Fully Love. I guess it's called Typography Horoscopes and about different typefaces and what they might say about you. I think my favorite line, and I'm slightly worried that I might be Ariel myself, but she describes Ariel as the supermarket sandwich of typefaces, which is <laughs> just a very funny way of describing it. Any bits that kind of stuck out to you from that feature? It's just really lovely. We worked with Becky and she used to work at It's Nice Then, but had a very, sometimes quite wicked sense of humour. She's extremely quick-witted and this is just such a great marriage of that sense of humour and also her unparalleled type design knowledge. But yeah, I think it's also just quite a funny insight into some of the silly conversations we have as a team and it's definitely very tongue-in-cheek, but I hope it makes people laugh slightly, particularly those type designers who are sometimes a little too serious. Yeah, it's definitely one that's a good marriage of humour and her knowledge of typefaces for sure. <laughs> and I'm worried that, you know, some people who love Druk might be a little bit offended. Is it Druk or Druk? Actually, you'll know. <laughs> I think it might be Druk. Sorry, Matt. No, the Druk fans <laughs> out there, apologies. Well, yeah, you can go and find that feature on itsnicethat.com. It's called Typography Horoscopes, What Your Font Choice Says About You and Your Future. I think we published it last week, so do go and check it out. I guess, Lucy, for today's interview, you sat down with the illustrator Olympia Zagnoli. Now, for anyone who isn't familiar with Olympia and her work, could you give us a little introduction to where they might have come across her and her work? So Olympia is an Italian illustrator. She's based in Milan. She's kind of always lived there. I think she had a little bit of a stint in New York, but she's very much an Italian illustrator. I'm sure that people have seen her covers for The New Yorker, which she had two in very quick succession of each other a couple of years ago, which were definitely plastered all over Instagram and were extremely popular. But she's also done work with a variety of clients, actually. She's done lots of work with Dior, some beautiful illustrations that she's done with them, but she also created... A series of packaging for the tiny like tissue company, those little packets of tissues tempo, which is really nice. I remember speaking to her, a different conversation to this and how she really loves that her work has kind of gone across that high culture with Dior, but also kind of like 
60 cents packet of tissues that you would pick up. I mean, this is such a good interview. I really enjoyed listening to it. And you cover so many topics with Olympia. One of the things that really kind of stood out for me was where she talks about vulnerability and how you kind of have to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And what did you take from that part of the conversation? I think it's really inspiring how Olympia speaks about the kind of broadness that she tries to identify in her references, particularly, and looks for that vulnerability in others. And I think that was particularly motivating, especially, I think, in terms of when we are often putting work out online, whether you're a writer, an editor, or a creative that works in any kind of digital context, it's very easy to be bombarded by people whose maybe work is similar to you, or you feel a certain amount of like comparison with. And I think embracing that vulnerability or trying to think outside of your comfort zone when looking for references is such valuable advice. And yeah, definitely one I will take forward. There's a really good bit, I mean, kind of similar angle really is you talk a lot about research and I guess the almost the importance of building it into your day or your week. She talks about how when she's feeling frustrated or tired with a piece of work, it's often because she realizes she hasn't done enough research that week or enough research before starting the project. And I think that's just such an interesting point around how important research is. You know, she talks about going to libraries, going to archives and things like that. I think sometimes we only think of research when we kind of get a brief in or we're starting a project and you kind of set time aside to do it. But I really liked how she spoke about research as quite a holistic concept and how it should kind of be part of your every day and to make time for it. I thought that was really brilliant. Right at the end of the the interview, you kind of touched on, I guess, Olympia has done quite a lot of teaching in her career as well. And she talks about having architects and creatives from other disciplines come into her classes with really unusual ideas. And there's a lesson there about keeping your mind fresh and not getting too weighed down in one discipline. And I guess the strengths of being kind of cross-disciplinary where you can be. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. I, I've always really loved the way that Olympia has spoken about teaching. For those who are unaware, she's kind of been a, a teacher in Milan, kind of on and off, I think, for over a number of years. And often speaks about how it's so valuable to once you are kind of maybe more of an established creative to go back and make sure that you're kind of explaining the context in your process to those who are maybe a little less experienced than you but it's also so beneficial for you as a creator as well I think it kind of comes quite nicely full circle in her advice and looking for research in unlikely places or just having conversations and I'm sure it's very valuable for those students as well. Yeah, definitely. There's some really good advice in there for young creatives and emerging creatives. Okay, thanks very much, Lucy. Let's now play out your interview with Olympia Zagnoli. So hi, Olympia. Thank you for joining us today on the It's Nice That podcast. How are you? How are things in Milan? Hi, Lucy. Everything is good. I'm a little busy. I can't complain. You know, it's great that there are new things happening and I'm a little bit tired, but I'm looking forward to see what comes out of this moment. Me too. And I guess it's worth saying that today our conversation is mainly going to be around the overall kind of development of your practice and where it's heading next. And as many of our listeners will know, you're primarily known as an illustrator, but in recent years, your work has been expanding off the page, whether that's collaborations with fashion houses or food brands or in 3D settings as well. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about when you began to feel an itch to do something new, I suppose? I 
as you said, began as an illustrator because I've always loved books as a child. So I've always felt like images had to be in books. And I read a lot of like children books when I was growing up. And then I was always attracted by images in books, generally book covers or, you know, magazines and stuff. So in the beginning, I found it pretty natural to gravitate towards that editorial field, that space. And then over the years, I've started being interested in exploring the space between one discipline and another and see if a drawing or an illustration can, in a way, detach itself from the page and become something else and therefore escape the two dimensions and enter the three-dimensional space. In a way, I'm trying to find a space where I am comfortable enough to feel uncomfortable and reach that sort of vulnerability that I felt so much growing up, especially trying to find my own voice in what I was doing. And I'm trying to grasp that again in order to create something that hopefully can become something interesting for me to dive into. And out of interest, what were the kind of like first experiments that you did outside of 2D illustration, I suppose? The first experiments still are born in the two dimensions, but in a way they've been taken out of that comfort zone. One of the first experiments I remember is a brand that does luggage and they asked me to just create a pattern to illustrate a couple of their luggages. And that again, like is a job that was born in the two dimensions, meaning that I did sketches on a sketchbook for that. And then I created the illustration on the computer, but having to think about like a different material and the fact that these luggages would have been taken from people and used. And I myself have a pair of those and I still use them to this day, like 10 years after. And I see how they age. I see how they look when they're, you know, inside a plane. I see how they react to space when they're on the sidewalk waiting for the cab to arrive. And this idea of, in a way, exploring the relationship between my work and space and observe what space and time can do to this object. I think it's really interesting what people around it can do, what the weather can do to them is a dimension that I find quite fascinated. There have been other experiments done in the past, some other collaborations that I've done with fashion brands, for example, that's also a very interesting territory. Because again, you're working in what for me is a traditional way, but just having a design ending up on a skirt that someone could wear and, you know, the wind comes and the skirt starts moving and you can see your drawing changing or the person's pairing your drawing with a sweater of a color that you would have never imagined. And to see this combination of life and design for me are really interesting developments of my work. And it must just be such an amazing feeling to see your work in a public space as well. It feels like that's kind of what you're talking around. And I know that you've recently kind of done quite a few sculptures as well. How does that kind of feeling compare when you see them kind of live in different settings? Well, sculpture is something that I haven't studied and that I know so little about, but I am so attracted by it. 
it's certainly something that I don't master, especially I'm so used to work on a flat background. In a way, I'm very aware of what we see in the flat space, but I'm not as aware about what's around an object or behind an object, what's the back side of an object or a face or a shape. So sometimes I've had the opportunity to work with artisans and to create these cultures that I've exhibited in exhibitions or similar events. And when I go to these wonderful workshops, they're like wood workshops or glass workshops, or I've worked with plexiglass and, and plastics. And then you talked with these people and they're like, okay, this is the front. But what do you want around it? Sometimes is for me, it's a very challenging question. And I ha- kind of have to destructure what I know and invent a new dimension. So that's really kind of like a vulnerable space for me but also quite challenging and interesting. I think it's really interesting the way that you speak about vulnerability that you've mentioned a few times there as well. Do you think maybe that vulnerability is quite necessary for creative work? Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel vulnerable right now putting together a series of paintings I've never really painted. So I'm working and trying to find my voice in that in that field. And it's incredibly difficult for me. And still there's something that keeps attracting me in that direction. It's like a, a magnet. There's something so deep about it, both in terms of the actual techniques, the actual materials, but also in terms of the tradition that we have, the fact that A lot of us grew up around art and painting as a traditional technique. So it's really a territory that's filled with and charged with so many meanings that, of course, I'm going to find it magnetic. But at the same time, I find it so hard to, again, find a comfortable zone in this magnetic field. (laughs) I think it's really brave as well, especially when your work is so known globally and to kind of push yourself in a new direction. It's definitely brave in my eyes. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about the paintings that you're working on? I'd love to hear more about them. Yeah, well, I was invited by a gallerist in New York to have an exhibition with new things, particularly paintings. And I've been painting on and off for many years. I'm kind of like a Sunday painter. I I do it like when I'm on a holiday. I do it when I find some material that attracts me, a color that attracts me. So I would maybe buy it at the art supply store and come back home and try something. But I've never found so far a result that really satisfied me something that really reflected who i was in that moment or my instincts my aspirations and all of it so i would do it and then leave it for a while and then come back to it maybe a few months after or maybe a year after and so having someone actually proposing to do a show with this work for me was really exciting but at the same time terrifying And we're probably going to do a show at some point this year. Again, I'm very grateful, very scared, and I'm sure there's something in there that will click at some point that I will connect to. It's not completely there yet, (laughs) but I'm looking for it. 
And I guess from the outside, your work can kind of come across as very like clean and it's quite neat in its like final presentation. But I imagine behind the scenes, especially in painting, it's quite different. How have you found the differing processes, I suppose? Oh, yeah. My work, you know, looks very polished sometimes, not all the time, but very balanced, quite symmetrical. Somebody refers to it as geometrical. It's nothing but that. Like I am very messy as a person and you can see that in my sketches, for example. In a way, I feel like I need to control the space that I'm working into. Therefore, the clean spaces, the clean shapes, the flatness, some sort of flatness in in what I do. But if you really look into you know, the detail or the back of the work, it's very, very messy and never precise, which in a way I'm not aspiring to. I also feel like in my particular case, these little imperfections are what make the work alive. Like you, you can feel that there's a person behind it, which nowadays, you know, with technologies and stuff, I think it's still a good thing. But yes, they're nothing but perfect. <laughs> I guess as well, that's what makes it yours. You'll know those little details behind it, which is so nice. And I guess as well, within talking around how broad your practice is becoming, I've always known you to be someone that has really broad inspirations as well. I'd be really interested to know what you've been looking at recently, whose work you're admiring. You know, many, many, many things at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) in a quite hectic group, let's say. My work is certainly inspired by, you know, the artistic avant-garde of the 1900, you know, Italy in general, in terms of colors and light and, and a certain maybe irony as well. More recently, I've been really attracted by geometric abstraction, especially I've been interested by the fact that a lot of women artists gravitated towards this way of expressing yourself creatively. Carmen Herrera just passed, she was 105, and I remember seeing an exhibition of her at the Whitney Museum in New York, and it was so impressive how she took space with these very simple shapes and these very bright colors, and how these works inundated the space just by being very simple, but also so dense in terms of meaning, I think. Another artist that I keep going back, but particularly right now, is Joseph Hoffman, which operated between the end of 1800 and the beginning of 1900. What I really appreciate about his work is, first of all, that everything contemporary you see is, in a way or another, based on that research that he did. Everything that's now kind of popular from Memphis design, 80s inspired design, a lot of that stuff come from observations that he did. But what I'm mostly interested in is that he's one of those personalities that worked in a way that broke all the boundaries between one discipline and the other. So he worked as an architect, but he also worked as a product designer. He made teapots. He designed like silverware, he designed chairs, but he also designed book covers. And that's something that I find really attractive in in artists in general. And so I'm always like attracted by these personalities that were able to 
jump from one field to the other with some sort of like lightness and elasticity that I sometimes try to emulate because maybe because I feel so much the need to, again, don't get bored and and try to do new things every day. You mentioned quite a lot around research there, and I'm quite interested in what part that plays in your own practice. Like, do you dedicate certain time to it? Is it part of your daily practice? Yeah, research is a very important aspect for me. And sometimes when I feel the most like frustrated and tired is because I I haven't dedicated enough time to research. And maybe I've been working very hard or I've been distracting very hard, which is something that I do as well a lot. And I kind of like forget that the research part is, is so important. And, you know, research can take many different shapes. I like to go to the public library and just spend a couple hours going through random books that I find. I also like to, of course, see exhibitions as much as I can, but also like open a book, like open a novel and read five pages. I'm sure there's something interesting in there. And it sounds pretty banal, but it's really true. At least it it is for me. Just stop for a second and not focus so much on producing, but just allowing yourself to explore and be curious and be attracted by the little details that you see in the streets walking and you know looking at the roof of your own house that you have not noticed before or listening to the lyrics of a song but really listening and all of these things that I tend to do in my spare time or on my walk from home to the studio. Sometimes they seem just like a given, but I think it's so important to pay attention. And that could be research as well. So I think research doesn't have to be a specific thing or happen in a specific way, but it could be everything. Just, you know, opening your eyes and and ears and try to have a critical approach to whatever is around you. Even like a pastry could be research. If you really focus on the flavor, on what's causing you or what emotion is giving you, I think that could be research and that could be turned into a sort of atmosphere that you can translate into your work. I think it's such good advice because often when I'm beginning new projects and you kind of set yourself a day or two to begin the research side of it or look for collaborators, I begin to start like dreading it because I'm like, this is the period where I need to decide everything that this will end up being and kind of build it up in my head a bit. And then when I actually should enjoy that period so much, and that's such good advice to take it in small doses, especially, yeah, just read for a few minutes and definitely will take the advice of going to get more pastries. (laughs) (laughs) That for sure, always. (laughs) I guess kind of in this conversation as well, it would be great to know a little bit about your relationship with social media in that respect as well. And do you see that as a good tool for research and inspiration or can it sometimes be a bit too much? Well, I think social media has been really good to me so far. I've used it for sure to find out new things, new people, new artists. And I've made a lot of friendships, especially on Instagram with other artists from around the world that I was lucky enough to meet at some point. It's always been really good and exciting. 
On the other hand, sometimes I see that I am exposed to things that are a little bit too similar, and therefore I try to take some distance. For example, illustration, like as much as I love images and I love making them, I'm not that interested in illustration per se. I try to get inspired by different things. I I would rather like follow a cook or a gardener or, you know, an architect or a designer rather than maybe someone that does exactly what I do. And that's why maybe, you know, aside from some colleagues or friends, I don't follow many other illustrators and maybe because I'm trying to protect myself from being too exposed to it. So I think that, yeah, social media is great. It's definitely been great for my work practice, also for contacts. But at the same time, I think that we should protect ourselves from yeah, the constant bombarding of images, which sometimes is exhilarating and exciting and sometimes could be very repetitive. And I think limiting it could be certainly a powerful move. I feel like sometimes that element of like the chase of trying to find inspiration is kind of taken away with social media because there's just so much of it. But I guess I've always really enjoyed your feed, to be honest. I always think it's such a insight into your life. And there's always kind of little snippets of writing that you enjoyed or photographs from trips of yours. And it doesn't feel like a reel of projects that you've been working on. And yeah, I suppose, do you tend to kind of treat it a little bit like a diary? That's kind of how it feels from the outset, maybe. I sometimes think about, you know, those cork boards that you would have in your room growing up. I kind of treat it the same way. Like I would put some experiments that I've done, some sketches that I've done, but also maybe a postcard of Elvis and then a bit of writing or I try not to make it too personal because I am not, you know, sacrificing my private space for social media. But at the same time, I also try to not make it a full portfolio because I feel like my own portfolio could could benefit from cuts from magazines or collages or a little thing, little things that I see around. So all these things are part of my work as well. If I look at a, if I watch a movie the night before and there's one specific part that I really enjoyed, in a way that could become inspiration for a new work. So I don't mind sharing that. And I also try to, in a way, behave the same way that I behave in real life. I try not to change my personality too much. I try not to modify the way that I relate with other people or with other people's work or with news in ways that are different to what I would do in real life. And that so far has been a great tool, I would say. So I'm trying to stick to to that rule. I don't know if that could work for everyone, but it certainly worked for me so far. I can imagine that when people are maybe looking to work with you in terms of maybe a client or a collaborator, I feel like people are kind of looking for that element of personality as well. I know that when we're looking for people to work on projects, we want to know if they're interested in the subject, whether that's like food or music or fishing, whatever it might be. And I think that it's really nice to know that that might be how someone would decide to work with you because they have noticed you're interested in something. And I was wondering if you had any particular advice for maybe a creative who's listening, who they might be a photographer, but are looking to get into illustration or vice versa. Like how can they make that first step, I suppose, in moving in a new direction and, or harness some of that bravery, which you have as well? 
Well, in my experience, like I've had the opportunity to teach sometimes in masters, schools, programs, workshops, and I've always noticed that most of the times, the most interesting ideas come from people who are not educated in that field. So I've had specifically in illustration workshops, I've had great architects that would show up and have maybe no idea how to draw in a more free way, but they would have great ideas and great concepts to develop, as well as people who came from all different fields, all different education or no education at all. And their mind in a way is fresher than somebody that maybe has been studying painting for 12 years, you know, like sometimes having less knowledge of the practice that you're attracted to is a great thing, I think. I'm not saying that everyone who has been trained in something, I'm not saying that their work has no value, not at all. But sometimes like freeing yourself from the structure and from the grid that you've been taught into is great, I think, to approach any new adventure, especially with creativity involved. So I would recommend not to be too scared of the final result, but kind of like take advantage of the fact that you're free and your ideas are coming from maybe different backgrounds. And that could be a very interesting place to start from. Thank you, Olympia. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But yes, thank you so much for such an insightful conversation about your practice and where it's heading next. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the It's Nice That podcast. Thank you so much, Lucy. Hope to see you soon. That was Olympia Zagnoli there speaking with our senior editor, Lucy Borton. If you'd like to hear a longer version of that interview, you can by joining Extra Nice. It's Nice That's membership program. You'll get your hands on a host of benefits and goodies, including a bit more time and a few extra insights from Olympia. Please do check it out. Right, that's nearly all we've got time for. But before we head off, we've got one last treat in store. Every episode of the podcast, we hear from a creative somewhere in the world as they tell us about a place in their city that keeps them inspired. For this fourth episode, we're staying close to home and jumping over to West London to hear from the illustrator Lily Kong, who's sitting in a particularly inspiring cafe. Let's hear from Lily. Hi, I'm Lily Kong. I am an illustrator and artist based in London. Today, I am going to tell you about this place that inspires me. Right now, I am in a cafe called Monaco near Baker Street. It's pretty quiet on the weekday. They do really nice soy latte, which is always my favorite. When I'm on a creative block, I go to a nearby small cafe. It is my an hour or two really great unconstructed time that I come up with ideas and kind of mix it up with emailing and drawing. I like watching people. I observe the world around me. I look at the outfits of strangers. I listen to the conversations between the barista and the customers. I watch the happy stinky dogs sniffing around, particularly at other people's shoes. I would draw all these things and mix it up with how I feel about it. There's once that I did this illustration called Wet Butt. And while I was in the cafe, I was looking out from the window and I saw these kids running into the water fountains. I think they were playing a game 
but all they did was trying to sit on streams of water with the tips of their bottoms. It was cute and funny and almost ridiculous to look at, so I drew it. If you have trouble landing on something that is worth saying, I find free writing and free drawing to be the best tools. All you need is to clear an hour of your day, sit in the cafe, aka away from your bedroom, and just draw. And nice things will eventually come out. That was Lily Kong telling us about a bustling and clearly very inspiring cafe in West London. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. My thanks to Olympia Zagnoli and to our senior editor Lucy Borton for conducting today's interview. I'm sure you've all listened to podcasts before, so this won't come as a surprise. But if you enjoyed listening to this, it would make us very happy if you could write a review on your favorite podcast app, and even better if you could also subscribe to the show. It's nice that podcast is produced by Palm Tree Island. Our theme music was written and performed by Sounds Like These. Thanks very much for listening, and see you next time.